B-52. B-52. I'm heading down the Atlanta Highway Looking for a love getaway Heading for a love getaway I got me a car, it's as big as a whale And we're heading on down for the love shack Four? I got me a Chrysler, it sets about 20 So hurry up and bring your jukebox money The love shack is a little old place where we can get together Love Shack Baby A Love Shack Baby B-52 B-52 Hello treasure seekers and welcome to Shandy Andy's Unguarded Treasure B-52 This is Series 1 Episode 24 Let's kick off this episode with a couple of messages I received since my last episode. First up is Joe Richter from the Hindsightless Podcast. Andy, it's Joe. And that story of how you ended up running the Holmes game is... Just super rad, man. <laughs> like, that's how it goes sometimes. You're hanging out, you have a few beers, somebody hits you up, the idea seems amazing at the time, and then the next day you're like, huh, okay, so I'm doing that now, man. But good on you, dude. That's dope that you're going to be running some homes, man. I hope that sticks. I hope you get enough people and then it works out, man. Good luck. Have fun. Peace out. Hey, Joe. Thanks for the call. Yeah, so glad I had a couple of beers that evening. It was so agreeable to running the homes, d and I'm sure if I hadn't have had the beers, I wouldn't have jumped into it. So it just goes to show alcohol can be a good thing. But drink respons- responsibly, folks. Next up, we have Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast podcast. Hey, Shandy Andy, this is Jason, Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I was just driving home, and, and I was thinking, you were talking about running Holmes Basic, or, well, Holmes D&D, and um, it occurred to me that I remember reading either in Holmes or in the Blue Home book, I don't remember which, but I want to say that one of those says that magic users are not supposed to take their spell books into dungeons, that they're too big and too valuable and fragile, and they can't take them into dungeons with them. They can't travel with them, stuff like that. And I'm curious how you're going to handle that in your game. And like I say, I'm in the van driving, so I might be totally off my rocker here. I'll have to check the books this weekend. Maybe we can talk about it during the Samurai game. But just curious how, how you're planning on handling that, if I'm remembering right. Talk to you later. Hey, up, Jason. Thanks for the message. No, you're on your rocker, don't worry. Uh, you're absolutely right. That is the advice. Rules is written in uh, the Holmes D&D. Uh, this was only a one-shot, so I, you know, hand-waved that. Um, ma- you know, magic user books never came into the conversation, and I just assumed that they had the one spell prepared, and that was all they could use in the adventure. So it wasn't an issue. But uh, you bring up an interesting point. Yeah, I can imagine running a longer campaign in that, that that's something you'd have to take into account 
if I remember rightly, I seem to remember that we home ruled BX so that you had like a smaller version of the of your magic user spell book that was a sort of adventurous version that you took with you so you could um, recoup the spells. I'm a little hazy of how we actually run that now, thinking back. I suppose it was probably something along the lines of you prepared you, you prepared a set number of spells in that book and then you were stuck with them until you were able to come back and do some other ones. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting point. And I suppose a lot of people have got different ways of dealing with it. I certainly feel you have to give some sort of flexibility to magic users because they are so restricted in those early versions. So I'd be interested uh, to hear if anyone else has got any opinions on that. So the good news was I did indeed run the Homes D&D rule sets for the Tower of Xenopus. It was at Stink Gaming over in Belper, which is a, an adjacent town to where I live in Derbyshire in the UK. It's um, about, a, I suppose, a 15-20 minute car journey away, and my wife did drop me off. It's doable by the bus, but it was on a Sunday, and the bus service is only once an hour, so it would have been it meant quite an early start on a Sunday. And quite frankly, I wanted to lie in. Uh, the only real problem we had was that unfortunately the game shop was an hour late opening it was supposed to be open at 11 o'clock i got there about 10 minutes early uh, it was all locked up and the three players who turned up also turned up but by about sort of 10 past 11 it became obvious there was a problem and a message soon popped up on social media saying that um, the person who was going to supposed to be opening the shop up had unfortunately ended up going too far up the va the uh, Derwent Valley because the uh, usually I gather she catches the train up but there was a replacement bus service and she didn't know quite where to get off and ended up getting off at the uh, village a couple of villages up so it was all a bit of a, <laughs> a mess uh, so the four of us decided we'd pop into a cafe and we had a coffee and a bit of a natter which was quite good anyway really enjoyed that so it was fairly productive uh, the the three players who turned up were um, Paul, Christopher and Leslie. Paul and Christopher I play 5E with uh, and I've known them, well, I suppose, for 12 to 18 months, something like that. And Leslie I've known for about 12 months and I've played RuneQuest with her on several occasions. We finally got in the shop about at Tempest 12, I think it was, and we'd uh, reserved the snug, which is the small room that the uh, place has they also have a large room and there was a big gathering of oh, i don't know card players or war gamers or some strange characters like that whereas we got the uh, small room which uh, i suppose could handle about eight people so the four of us it was quite spacious um so i'd i had pre pre-generated seven characters one for each of the uh character race strokes classes in homes um, but decided that as long as each of the players rolled up two characters we wouldn't need any extra help with those characters and they were quite keen to roll up their own characters so we went ahead and did that and I think it took about 45 minutes in the end uh, we ended up with um, 
Leslie was playing a cleric and an elf, uh, and it was six and three hit points. Christopher was playing a dwarf and a wizard with three and one hit points. And Paul was playing a fighting man and a thief with six and one hit points. I pre-warned them that uh, any money that they got, armour should be their priority. And they took that advice to heart and made sure that they were fully plated up. Because that's one of the good things about uh, Holmes D&D is the plate armor is only 50 gold pieces. So it's affordable even to start in character. So most of them had a, an armour class of one except for the magic user who was down at nine and the thief at six. Um, now, I did have a chat with them and found out that Leslie had played Beckme uh, back in the 1980s and that Paul had in fact played AD&D 2 Ed in the early 90s. So they did have a little bit of what I'd call old school experience and that did show in the fact that uh, there were 10 foot poles and there were mirrors being purchased with no prompting from me. In fact, Leslie even brought a mule as well <laughs> to carry all the loot out, which I found quite amusing. So that was great. <clears throat> so I think we sort of kicked off roughly about uh, one o'clock with the actual game. I started all the characters off <clears throat> at the Green Dragon Inn in Poor Town, as per the scenario. Gave them uh, a chance of a few extra rumours, which aren't mentioned in the rule book. Uh, and they all happened to rule for the, uh, roll for the same <laughs> rumour. So I ended up finding out that a merchant's daughter had been kidnapped, <clears throat> or, they, or at least gone missing, and they thought might have been kidnapped. And um, potentially was she was uh, last seen boasting that she was going to go down into the dungeons beneath the old, where the Tower of Xenopus used to stand. So that really set them up. They were quite happy sort of uh, taking that, a bit of railroading to get them to go down there. Um, we had a bit of a chat and I explained. <clears throat> I chucked some graph paper into the middle and said, somebody needs to do some mapping. Uh, and suggested somebody took down the party loot and the other person was sort of uh, the caller as such. So Paul uh, volunteered to do the mapping and Leslie volunteered to do uh, keeping track of the loot. So Christopher was left being the caller uh, we didn't strictly enforce that it was just um you know that allowed them to have a chat amongst themselves and then uh, chris was sort of liaised with me with the actual decision uh, and that seemed to work quite well throughout the adventure i have to say i had an absolute blast running it really enjoyed doing some an old school dungeon crawl the players despite mainly being five, really doing 5e now really got stuck into it. They were uh, putting mirrors up to the corners of corridors and checking round them. They were using the 10-foot pole to prod ahead. Uh, and they, they really just got into the spirit of it. And they certainly mentioned during the adventure how it made them feel afraid, the fact that they had so few hit points that effectively they realised that one or two hits and that they were dead. Um, and that, that came across quite well, and I tried to play on that a little bit. They certainly ran away from the... There is a very large spider in the dungeon, which they uh, did spot and decided that that was not for them to take on, which I think was an excellent decision. Uh, and they had a, a really good time, I think, exploring it all. They, they got about, I'd say, we finished <coughs> just before five, so they had a good four hours 
adventuring and did about half the uh, dungeon, I'd say, r roughly speaking. So I th certainly think the Tower of Xenophus is, a, is really a two-session adventure for me. Um, the highlights were definitely there is a sentient dagger down there, um, which uh, basically tries to attack whoever picks it up. Um, and they came up with a brilliant solution in that um, because after it attacks and does a point of damage, it drops to the floor for three rounds before it um, animates again and tries to attack. So they soon figured this out. Uh, sadly, it was after the FIFA died, taking one point of damage and losing his only hit point. But uh, the next time when it fell on the floor, they had a quick discussion and decided to use some rope to tie it round the dagger. And they cut off a six foot bit of rope and tie it to a 10 foot pole. So the dagger effectively was being held up at the end of this 10 foot pole like a banner, desperately trying to stab at the person who was holding it. Um, and being unable to, which uh, I, I thought was absolutely brilliant. I, I love that type of improvisation uh, and the fact that they uh, decided to carry it around as a banner around the dungeon with them. So that was great. I asked the players at the end if they enjoyed it, and they certainly uh, said to me that they did, and they'd be prepared to run it again maybe at some uh, point in the future and finish off the dungeon. So that, that was quite good. Um, I don't think, I'll be honest, I don't think I've won them over from uh, Fifth Ed. But at least uh, I've given them, a, I gave them a sort of flavour of what it was like to run a, you know, to play in an old school game. And it was definitely at the end that they were, they were saying that, that that fear of death was much more there and was certainly an interesting way of playing. So a successful running of it i think um it's a good scenario i think the tower of xenophus i mean it's um you don't want to look too closely into why the various creatures are in certain rooms or anything like that but if you you know suspend your uh, suspend your disbelief and just get stuck in and enjoy it for what it is i think it's a really good adventure i'm certainly it after running that would run Holmes D&D again, no problem at all. Um, it's not massively different from BX anyway, I don't think. And I have to say, I, I, I just way prefer it to something like Fifth Ed. It's just these old school games, well, <laughs> these old games from the 70s and 80s have got a lot going for them for me. Um, I know they don't have the fancy artwork perhaps that uh, they do nowadays and the rules aren't laid out as well, but I think as actual rule sets go, they're just as good as anything that's come out, you know, <laughs> recently, to be honest. And as Chris said at the end, it, it's not so much the rule set we're playing, it's actually just having a good time, coming up with ideas and just having a laugh. And that we certainly did. Thank you to TJ Drennan for producing the B-52 theme tune for my podcast. You've been listening to Shandy Andy's Unguarded Treasure. If you'd like to contact me, please drop me a message on Anchor. Email me at shandyandy at gmail.com or possibly find me hanging around 
at Audio Dungeon Discord channel. B-52 B-52 I'm heading down the Atlanta Highway Looking for a love getaway Heading for a love getaway hey, I got me a car, it's as big as a whale And we're heading on down for the love shack For? I got me a Chrysler, it sits about 20 So hurry up and bring your jukebox money The love shack is a little old place where we can get together Love Shack, baby A Love Shack, baby B-52 B-52